a few years ago, I went back to elementary school I grew up in, Troop Elementary School in Indiana. And I don't know how they did it exactly, um, but somehow they made that building that I hadn't been in in a long, long time, they made it smaller than it was when I was there before. Like the hallways were shorter, they weren't as wide, the gym was smaller. Like these, these dark windows on the front there, when I was a kid, they were huge and somehow they've shrunk the windows. Like they're not as big. The ball field used to be you know, miles away. It's actually just right down the street. I don't know how they did all of that, but, but they did that. And have you ever had that experience where you, you go back to like an elementary school or some, some place that you hadn't been into since you were a little kid and how your perspective is just different? I don't know if you've ever experienced that before or not, but it's just different. And one of the things I think is tough for us as, as people thinking about faith, whether you're a Christian or not yet, is we, it's hard to get out of that childlike view that you have of faith. Because for many of us, our first experiences, maybe only experiences with Jesus, were as a kid at a VBS or a Sunday school or, or some sort of camp or something. And so you have this, this idea of Jesus that's kind of childlike, which in some ways is sweet and precious and helpful. But if you never grow out of that, sometimes there's some some tricky parts. You kind of have a flannel graph Jesus view of things. So there's a cute little cross and the little thorns he put on his head. Isn't that sweet? And then there's this whole thing about a tomb and guards and soldiers, and they're also cute. And it just, you have, this, you have this picture in your head. And if you never get out of that perspective, it's hard for you to, to really grow. You're, like your viewpoint's going to be stunted if you don't grow past that, if this is what faith looks like to you. And then when you face real life things, real life struggles and doubts, it's hard to wrestle with those if all you have is the flannel graph faith. And so we want to help you with that. You know, by the way, this is one of the reasons I'm, I'm so excited to take a lot of you, hopefully, to Israel. Some of you, a lot of you ex- express interest in that. Sign ups will be starting for that soon. Uh, but I, I put my hand inside the hole that archaeologists think was where the cross went. Like the original, I put my hand in there and took a picture of that. And I, I walked the short distance from that spot over to where they laid his body in the tomb. I, like I walked that distance and saw the tomb where, where he laid and then rose again. I prayed in an olive grove in Gethsemane right across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem and looked up at the city and looked up at the Temple Mount from where Jesus would have been praying the night before he was arrested. You know, when you see those things, it changes your perspective and I didn't have doubts of my faith when I went, but it, it still added some layers that weren't there before. And so if you're a Christian, you want to grow in your faith, I'd love to take you uh, with us to Israel. If you're a skeptic and you're not sure you believe this, I would especially love to take you as well to Israel. You don't have to be a, a Christian to go. Let's look at it together and, and wrestle with these doubts on the scene of where these things happened. And that's part of what today's about. So as part of this Deconstructing Doubt series, I want to go back and get an adult perspective, if you will, of the crucifixion itself. Consider it through adult eyes, a real event in real history. I've titled the message, The Truth About the Crucifixion. And I want us to to get a a real look on that. So to keep our thoughts collected, I'm going to explore the physical realities of the crucifixion, the spiritual realities of the crucifixion, and the emotional realities of the crucifixion. We'll kind of do it that way to keep everybody on the same page. So we're going to start with the physical first. On the screen is a picture of a first century model of Jerusalem. This was actually, of all the whole trip in Israel, this was my favorite stop. And it wasn't an ancient site. It was was built in 1966, but it was based on Jerusalem in 66 AD. 
kind of right at the high point of Jerusalem's history, right before the Romans came and destroyed it in AD 70. And the Temple Mount area is kind of dominates the viewpoint there. Uh, the Temple Mount is still there. It's 36 acres approximately in size, the largest area of its kind in the world. Now, the, the temple in the middle was destroyed in AD 70. The porticos around the outside edge, they were destroyed in AD 70. They're not there anymore. But the mount itself still survives, and you can walk on that. Hundreds of thousands of people could fit inside that and, and do at times during the year. The temple would have been in the middle. Uh, all around the temple are what they call temple courts. Again, large crowds could meet there. You read about that in the book of Acts a lot, how they met in the temple courts. That was all around the temple, uh, inside the mount, inside those 36 acres. On the one side, you have the Antonia Fortress. It was built by Herod the Great in honor of his buddy Mark Antony of Cleopatra fame, so back from history. And it, it was right there on purpose because the mount in those days, like today, was the site often of, of upsurges of violence and, and aggression and tension. So they had a fortress right there with military police type force right there on site. So when something would happen, the police would come in, the military would come in and, and deal with that. And this is likely, the fortress, one of two possible spots when Jesus was tried by Pilate in front of the crowds. So if you zoom in a little bit to the fortress, you can kind of picture, can't you, uh, Pilate walking out of those steps from the fortress out onto that terrace that covered the, the portico there in the temple courts, and thousands of people could be there in front of him as Jesus was tried in front of the large crowd when, when Pilate said, what do we do with this guy here? And you, you can just kind of picture all that. If you zoom in some more, you can really get the feel. I mean, this happened in real time, in real space to a real person with a real crowd of people who had to wrestle with all their emotions afterwards. And I think all that's just so different than the flannel graph Jesus perspective that a lot of us have from our childhood. This is one option of where the trial took place. We don't know 100% sure where it happened. We know what happened in Jerusalem. We don't know where. The other option is Herod's palace, which was on the western edge of the city. And honestly, and this is kind of what I think happened. We don't know for sure. Honestly, it's possible that Jesus went to both of those sites the night he was arrested because he was with Pilate and then he was sent over to Herod and then he came back to Pilate. So we don't know, but it may have been actually those two sites that, that he would have been over that night. Uh, the model was based, I, I said, I said a minute ago on 80, uh, Jerusalem from AD 66. That's about 30 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. And the city had expanded over those 30 years. At the time of his arrest and crucifixion, the walled in area of the city was actually smaller. So it didn't have that, that, uh, western edge wasn't there. And just outside of the city walls, there was an old quarry, a quarry, stone quarry, where they got the rock for the construction for the buildings and the walls and all that stuff. And they would crucify convicts right there in that red square that I added. Uh, that's where uh, Golgotha would have been. We, we know that quite for certain. And the tomb very likely also was in that rocky area of the quarry, uh, just a short walk from the cross. National Geographic made this recreation. Uh, you can see the city wall of Jerusalem there on the one side. Uh, the, the other wall would have been just to the top of that along that gray section. Uh, there's the quarry there. You can see the city wall you see the, on the right side. I think the cross is there in the middle near the edge of the bluff. You know, the cross probably wasn't at an elevated mountain like I always had in my head. It was probably on ground level, but they dug out the quarry below. And so the cross would have been on the bluff. And the tomb is in that same quarry area. Uh, 
This, this recreation estimates about 30 yards away. Today, it's all inside of one building. It's all under one roof as the church, uh, the universal church honors that location. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre is built over both those spots. And John 19 told us it's, it was in the same place that the, the tomb was. This wasn't miles and miles away. This was right near the site. Now let's talk about the, cru- the cross for just a minute. The, cr- the, the cross would have been a brutal way to die. You know, if you ever think about <laughs> planning out how you want to go, uh, the execution by crucifixion would have been maybe the hardest way to die. In fact, the history of the word excruciating, this is a little trivia for you, excruciating comes from the Latin word excruciare, which the Romans invented as a way to describe, it means literally as painful as a crucifixion. Like crucifixion was so painful The Romans created a new Latin word to describe just how painful it was. It's excruciating. Painful. The goal of the Romans wasn't just to kill somebody when they crucified them. They would behead them sometimes, or they would run them through with a sword, or they would beat them or stone them. Lots of ways to kill people in those days. And, And they didn't choose crucifixion because of that. It wasn't convenient at all. Uh... In fact, if they, didn't, if they didn't beat them ahead of time, flog them ahead of time like they did with Jesus, sometimes people would hang on the cross for days prior to, to dying. It wasn't to, just to kill them efficiently. It was to set an example for those in their family, for those in their friends, for those passing by who just happened to see. I mean, it's right on the edge of the, the, the temple wall, so it's, or it's the edge of the city wall, so as people are coming into the city, you're often walking past these crucified victims coming into Jerusalem. Now, Jesus was flogged before he was crucified. He was given 39 lashes, likely. Uh, you know, 40 lashes was considered by the Jews enough to kill a man. So they would give 39 lashes to really bad guys as a way to give him all but killing them kind of punishment. And that's what Jesus, Jesus had. But if you didn't get that, you would hang on to the cross, hang on to your life, struggling for breath for days on end as passerbys would see this poor soul losing his life. First century historian Josephus is a guy who writes a lot about things in the first century. We learn a lot about the world of Jesus' day from this guy, Josephus. And Josephus was also a military leader. He's very well connected. And so he writes about going to a mass, seeing a mass crucifixion. The Romans sometimes would just line the streets with, with crosses. So people had to walk by all of these people being crucified as a way of keeping control. And he writes about going on this, this deal where there's a bunch of people getting crucified, and he recognizes three of the victims as his buddies. And so because he was well-connected, he was good friends with a guy named Titus, who would later become the emperor of Rome, whose dad, Vespasian, was the emperor at the time of Rome. And Josephus runs to Titus and says, you've got to get my buddies off these crosses. Here's what he writes in in his biography. He says, I saw many captives crucified that day, and I remembered three of them as my former acquaintances. I was very sorry at this in my mind, and I went with tears in my eyes to Titus, the emperor's son, future emperor, and told him of them. So he immediately commanded that those three be taken down and have the greatest care taken of them in order that they recover. Yet two of the three died under the physician's hand while the third did recover. This is the only time I'm aware of in recorded history where a crucified person did not die. It's just very rare. Of all the thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of people crucified, this is the only one who survived. But think about it. This guy wasn't beaten ahead of time. He was put up there and quickly taken down, given physician's care, 
And still two of the three of those guys died. What must that have been like for Jesus? who didn't receive any of those things. He was beaten within an inch of his life before the cross, and then he was left up there until he died, and then a spear went in his side, and then he was thrown in a cave, if he was still alive, with no physician's care at all. Just ridiculous to think that didn't kill him. Crucifixion, honestly, was just brutal. It was excruciating, to use the word. This is a picture of Jim Caviezel. He was a, the actor who played Jesus in the 2004 film Passion of the Christ. If you've not seen that movie, that is worth your time. It's not good for your kids probably. It's a little brutal. But it is worth your time to watch at least once. It's hard to watch. And Caviezel writes in interviews how difficult it was to play this part. He said when they, when they raised him up, they, they attached him to the cross. And then when they raised him up and they dropped the cross down into the hole, that he actually suffered a separated left shoulder from that drop. So Caviezel says that the filming the scenes of the crucifixion quote, nearly killed me, and it was fake. It was for a movie. He didn't actually have a, a flogging beforehand. He didn't actually have nails in his hands. It was all fake, and yet even that was brutal for him. It was an excruciating way to die. You know, the, the way people die from this treatment, sometimes it's from suffocation because they can't pull themselves up to get air. Sometimes it's from heart failure because of the stress on your cardiovascular system. Sometimes it's from exposure because Jerusalem, especially during certain months, can get really windy and cold, and likely you were up there naked. Sometimes for days at a time can be. Sometimes you died of dehydration from all the blood loss of your body. And sometimes, and I didn't know this until this week, sometimes people would die actually from infection, because you can get sepsis from all the, the wounds and the beatings and the, the nails, which was not sanitary. And sepsis can kill a person within 12 hours. Likely, whichever one of those would kill a person on the cross, the other four were right behind it. And you were suffering all of those at the same time as you got to the end of your life. It's brutal. Now, one little bit of information in addition. You notice the crosses we have. We have one here. We have one um, in the, the lobby. You may not notice as much here because this one is elevated with the stage and such. But you may have realized when you go out there in the lobby, like it, they seem short. And you may have thought, well, they must be shortness for you know, scale or whatever. That's not actually real. When I was in Israel, I didn't know this until the Israel trip, they actually have found archaeological evidence that says the, the crosses probably were shorter. Uh, they, they didn't want you way up high elevated for people to look at. They, it was really more the idea that they wanted you looking eye to eye with people. Because if you're there for days at a time, as visitors are going into the city, as your family and friends are there and you're trying to intimidate them, they wanted you looking at them as you died. It, it, was, it was psychological, not just physical. So when Jesus on the cross would have looked out at the crowd and said, Father, forgive them, he wasn't up on a high looking down at them. He was looking at their eyes as he said, Father, forgive them. It just changes it a bit for me. Now, I, remember, I still remember where we were at in Israel when he was talking about this. We were, we were uh, on in Gethsemane, we're going through the path that Jesus took that day when he was describing this. And, and Mark's a really smart guy. He's the guy who will be taking us as well to Israel. And he's got a PhD in God or something. I don't know what his PhD is in, but something really smart. And so as he's describing this, he was talking about how they're at that level and he was just continuing to walk and we're all walking behind him. And I kind of stopped in my tracks and Amy's like, what are you? I was like, I'm just thinking about the scenes because this is so different than what I'd heard. And I said, I'm thinking about the sponge. Because you remember the, the, the Bible describes the Roman soldier getting the sponge on the stick and raising it up for Jesus. And in, the, in the, the films you see about Jesus, 
He's lifting it up to Jesus or putting it up on a spear and lifting it up to, to get it there. And he hear, Mark hears me, because we're in a crowd, you know. And he just, he's like, oh, you're asking about the sponge on the stick. I was like, yeah. Now, I know there's kids in the room, and so I'll, I'll try to be uh, appropriate and delicate here, but you can kind of fill in the gaps. So he said, you want to know about the sponge on the stick? He said, it's, it's different than what you've understood. I said, like, okay. So like what I'd always understood is this compassionate guy, right? There's a Roman soldier, maybe feeling a little bad, maybe beginning to wonder if this guy's actually a good man. And so he thinks, he's thirsty, let me get a sponge, and I'll hold it up there and give him some relief. That's not actually what was happening. They didn't have toilet paper in those days. They didn't have a duvet or any of those kind of sanitary things in those days. So most Roman households had a sponge near the latrine facilities. And so Jesus said he was thirsty. And a Roman soldier's like, oh, you thirsty convict? Let me give you a little sponge on a stick. It's brutal. It's brutal. I mean, what God went through, when the Bible says that Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him, it wasn't because it was a light challenge. It's because he cares about you and because he wanted to honor the Father so much that he went through that for us. Now, with all that in mind, let me dispel a couple of myths that, that have developed, I think, about the, the crucifixion and the miracle of the resurrection that, that I think are false. And I think the physical realities tell us that. Myth number one is that Jesus didn't die as a near-death experience. And now, with all due respect, that's just, just not plausible. I mean, the Romans were very good at what they do. They, they were very good at killing people, even without doing the flogging beforehand, which was optional, even without running the spear up into Jesus' side, puncturing his heart or his lungs. Uh, it's just, there's the idea that, that they put him on there, crucified him for the whole day, all of the stuff with the infection and all those, and then threw him into the tomb, and three days later, he comes out and is alive. The, the, the idea of all that happens, just, it just doesn't make sense. That's... Think of a better option. That's not a good one. And even if that was true, I want you to think about this. Even if this is true. So here's Jesus taken down. They think he's dead, but apparently he's not, according to the myth. And they throw him into a hole. And for three days, infection's probably ravaging his body. And after three days, somehow he's able to get the stone rolled away. And somehow he's able to get up and walk out of that place full of fevered infection. And he's going to be an inspiring figure to lead a movement? I mean, even if that was true, which I don't think there's any plausible way to think it is, he's not going to inspire anybody to do anything at all. They're going to say, this is the most pitiful person we've ever met. He doesn't inspire, we've conquered death and defeated the grave and the Romans are going to be... Like, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It's just a myth. A second myth is that they just went to the wrong tomb. They found the tomb empty because they went to the wrong, like they got confused. Where's the tomb at? We don't know. We don't. Like if the tomb was miles away, that would make sense. It's 30 yards away from the crucifixion site that they all knew where it was. It's in a prominent location. It's where people got crucified and 30 yards away, there's a tomb. They didn't go to the wrong one. That's just, that's just not true. The truth, the most plausible option is that Jesus rose from the dead and change the world. That's, that's why we believe it. So we've considered the physical realities. Let's talk for a minute about the spiritual realities. I have a few verses I want to show you. Isaiah 53 is the first one. This is a prophecy from before the time of Jesus. It says, it says the Messiah grew up, Jesus would have grown up before God like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that would, he, he should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. That's what a crucifixion victim is described as. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Can you imagine how that was probably literally true? People walking by the crucified site with him at eye level, you would have like, I don't want to look at him. Like, I don't want to lock eyes with this guy. Surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. I'll talk about that in just a minute, pierced. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. This prophecy was 750 years before Jesus. It'd be like somebody writing in the 1300s about two towers that had a bird fly into them and dropped or something. We'd be, we'd be slack-jawed if we heard some kind of prophecy like that to, to get kind of precision on that. But to make it even more... To make it even more, crucifixion wasn't even invented yet when Isaiah wrote this. They didn't have crucifixion. It was invented like 400 years later. So the idea of him being pierced, the, the idea of him being, all of these very specific, it just, it just is amazing that, that God inspired it this way. 2 Corinthians 5 says, Jesus died for all, and those, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. When you, when you come to faith in Christ... You're essentially trading lives with God. So Jesus laid his life down for you. You're laying your life down for him. And now he's in charge. You die to yourself. In fact, in, in baptism, Romans 6 says that as Jesus was lowered down into the ground and raised up again to life, you lower yourself. You die to yourself and you're raised up again and in, in identifying with what Jesus has done for us. It's a powerful picture. First John chapter 2 says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but for also for the sins of the whole world. It's for the whole world. Sometimes Christianity is, is uh, accused of being exclusive. But he didn't die for just for a particular race or a particular ethnicity or a particular economic status. He died for the whole world. You know, Christianity is not just a Western religion. That, that's, it's kind of got a moniker of it's just for Europe and the United States. It's not true. The center of Christianity today is not in the U.S. and Europe like it once was. The center of Christianity now is in Africa and South America and Southeast Asia. Those are the areas that are growing the most. Those are the areas where Christianity is flourishing and thriving. This is sin died. He died for the whole world, not just for a few of us. Romans chapter 4 says Christ was handed over to die because of our sins and he was raised to life to make us right with God. I love this verse because sometimes the Bible can be confusing. And yet this verse tells us everything we need to know. He died for our sins. He was raised, raised to life to make us right with God. You, you might say, well, I don't know about this passage or I don't know about this passage or I don't even understand a lot of this. That's fine. Let's just put all this to the side to start with. If you're wrestling with faith, that's the bottom line of it. Jesus died on a cross for your sins, for mine, and he was raised to life to make you right with God. All the other stuff we'll figure out. It's all important. But unless you wrestle with that, just let this stuff not be a distraction. It's powerful to me. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If God is willing to do that for you, he came to earth not only leading heaven, not only living a tough life, he came to earth knowing this was the result, knowing this is where he's going. And if God is willing to do that for you, I mean, I love y'all, I wouldn't do that for you. I certainly wouldn't send one of my kids to do that for you. If God's willing to do that for you, you should pray differently. This is not a God who doesn't care about you. This is not a God who doesn't believe in you. This is not a God who doesn't want you in his life. He's done everything possible short of forcing your hand to bring you into his life. He did it for you. And now you have the opportunity to be made right with God because of what he's done. All right, we talked about the physical realities. We talked about the, the spiritual realities. Let's end by talking about the emotional realities for just a minute. So if you, if you go outside of, of Israel, so Israel is here on the east side of Israel, the, the Temple Mount's on the eastern edge, and then it goes down to the Kidron Valley and then goes up into the Mount of Olives. And along that hillside going up to the Mount of Olives is, is Gethsemane. And Gethsemane means, it's named after a wine press. So in, uh, a Gethsemane was a press where they would have two large stones, kind of like a mill in our day, and you'd put grapes in there and they would crush the grapes and, and juice would come out the side and they would make it into wine. And so Gethsemane, you would crush and crush and crush. And in fact, they would crush multiple times to get uh, more of the grapes or more of the olives. They would press olives in there as well. And so Gethsemane was a, a press where they would squeeze that down. And in Gethsemane... Uh, Jesus was there taking the weight of all of our sins. So every bit of shame you've ever felt from everything you've ever done wrong. You know, you did something wrong, you feel guilty about it, or you do something wrong, you feel ashamed of yourself. All of the guilt and shame of all of humanity, of all of time, was placed on Jesus. And he would have felt that as the, as the press came down on him. And then he had, not only that, but his, his friends turned against him. Judas betrays him. He knows G- G- Peter's going to deny him. He's got all of that weight on him, and he's being pressed. And then he also knows what's coming. You know, crucifixion's not a cultural thing for us. We don't typically go into Spring Hill and see people being crucified. We don't, we don't see that. He would have been aware of that. He would, every time he would have gone into Jerusalem, he would have seen people being crucified, likely, while he was there. This would have been a normal thing. He knows what's coming for him. Let me show you a picture. This is, uh, this is a picture from Gethsemane looking up at Jerusalem. So the circle is around a gate inside of that wall. Now the gate's not used now, but that gate would have been the main gate into the east side of Jerusalem in those days. And what that means is when Jesus is there in Gethsemane praying that God would give him strength, that God would prepare him for what's ahead, he would have seen a group of soldiers with torches coming out of that gate coming his direction. It's about 15 minutes. Once they come out of those gates, with Judas leading the way, 15 minutes later, he gets arrested, and then everything's set into motion at that point. So for 15 minutes, while he's praying, and they're coming, and the disciples are sleeping, and Judas is leading the way, and the shame and guilt of the entire world is being pressed onto him, Sweat drops like blood oozing out because of the anxiety he's feeling. He sees them coming, and he could have bailed. 
Because in fact, if you turn around in Gethsemane and look the other direction, this is a current, obviously, picture, but you see the olive groves there. But that road there would have been an ancient road as well. It goes up over that ridge. And once you get over the ridge, you go out into the desert. Just like if you go over this, over the interstate, you go out into the countryside. Like if you go over the, the ridge, you're out in the desert and there's caves and wilderness and you, you're gone. And that's about 15 minutes away as well. So Jesus is standing between 15 minutes away Jerusalem and 15 minutes away the desert. And he's watching them come knowing all I got to do is bail and it's over. Crucifixion's done. Or I can wait for them to come get me and I know what's ahead. And he's pressed. So when you hear the lie in your head that no one cares about you, that's a lie. When you hear in your head that you're not worth much, it's a lie. You're worth a lot. When you, you hear in your head the idea that no one's ever going to really be there for you, it's not true. When you hear in your head that everybody's going to let you down eventually, it's not right. Because Jesus stayed in that moment till the end for you. Jesus stayed in that moment watching the soldiers get closer and closer and closer, knowing at any time I can just bail and I'll be gone. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then sat down at the right hand of God. And now he gives you the option. He's done everything short of forcing your hand to connect with you. And now he invites you to come. To accept the free gift that he's offered. To live your life reoriented as the disciples did around the free gift that he offers the world. And now the ball's in your court. The ball's in mine. We get one life. Only one life. How are you going to live the one life you get? Why don't you bow your head and let's pray together. God, I ask that you would give us clarity of mind. Faith is a childlike thing. A a toddler can understand what Jesus has done, and yet there's realities of the depth of the suffering, the depth of the pain, the depth of the the endurance that, that you face for us that adds texture to our faith. God, change us. Change me. Help me to not be so distracted and pushed away. God, I pray especially for those who are not following you right now. Maybe they've never had a connection with you. Maybe they've maybe they had a childlike flannel graph like view and have kind of walked away as an adult. Maybe they followed you as an adult, but but aren't really following you now. God, I pray especially for that group that today would be a day that they give themselves fully to you. This season that we celebrate your resurrection would be a season they give themselves fully to you. God, for all of us, may we live our life differently. The disciples were night and day different because of what you did and what they experienced and what they saw. May that be true of us. We take a, we take a look. God, a good heart look at what love has done in our life and we honor you because of it in the name of Jesus